0: Welcome to the Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour. From CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto, or on one of our much-appreciated radio, community radio partners somewhere on this land, or on a podcast, and I'm David Franklin, Erwin Hostetter.
1: I'm Stefan Christian, Erwin Hostetter.
0: And we are joined by our excellent guest host, Alex Tavasoli, chemical engineer, now working in Boston, who has been on the show at least twice before. I'm going to say
1: at least like four times.
0: Ooh, that's like a few. That's a more than a few. That's yeah. approaching a several.
1: Okay. Yeah, we're into several for sure.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: We are going to do climate news and commentary, and then Stefan's going to interview Nigel Bariff.
1: Nigel Bariff.
0: Nigel Bariff, mm-hmm. <clears throat> who is co-emceeing a climate justice rally.
1: Yes, the, the Global G- Day for Climate Justice.
0: Happening tomorrow on the 6th of November if you're listening to this on the 5th. It was on the 6th of November in Queens Park, Toronto.
1: At 1 p.m. It's also happening all over the world. He's co seeing the one in Toronto. In Toronto.
0: But first, Stefan wanted to ask Alex about some work she's been doing.
1: So obviously off the top, thank you so much, Alex, uh, for joining us as a guest host. Super appreciate you being here. And, you know, as you often do before we dive into the news, we'll have a quick thing that things that we're thinking about. And, you know, prior to the show you and i were talking alex uh, and you noted that you had been looking into into ways to sustainably source materials uh, for renewable technologies which sort of pinged something in my brain uh, that i wanted to highlight but before we get to that perhaps you could just tell our listeners what you've been looking into and why
2: right so um thanks my work here surrounds sustainable resource management and materials use sort of as they relate to the energy transition and so i think a lot about where we get the materials that we're going to use for renewable technologies and um, uh, how those are going to create potentially unknown knock-on effects in the future. So one that's really been bothering me lately is that I learned that uh, when you refine the rare earth metals that you need for the big magnets that go into wind turbines and electric vehicle motors, um, you get quite a significant uh, waste stream of radioactive waste that is sort of similar to the radioactive waste you would get from a nuclear energy plant. And so that is sheds light on the types of considerations that need to be taken into account when we're deciding what exactly to put in place in terms of policies in the future. And that sort of goes hand in hand with the petrochemical sector as well. A lot of petrochemicals are used to make adhesives and solvents that go into solar panels and um, lithium ion batteries. So I sort of analyze those systems and think about uh, better ways to do that.
1: In that conversation, what struck me and sort of what I was going to highlight before we dive into the news is this that there's the sheer amount of work that still exists even when we all start moving in the right direction. You know, as you've highlighted, a lot of these renewable technologies have their own drawbacks and their own unsustainable parts of them that have to be figured out for it to really be able to scale. And, you know, it's like stopping actually giving money to the extraction of fossil fuels is an obvious first step. And the second step is to stop burning them. But there's just so much more work to be done on this other side. You know, the world, the world, what I'll call the sort of world building side, you know, to ensure that we're not just recreating the injustices that we have today with a, sort of a net zero bumper sticker on them.
2: That's a, that's a good point. But I think the good news there is that the majority of emissions come from actually burning the fossil fuels. So even if we use a little bit of fossil fuels to keep making these products in the future, the, the majority of emissions will have been reduced if we're not burning them for electricity or vehicle use.
1: Right. Yeah. And in that particular topic, we'll come back very shortly when we get to listen to uh, our wonderful prime minister. Uh, but let's dive into the news over to you, Dave.
0: All right. We're just going to take a short music break and come back with climate news. At the beginning of the climate conference in Glasgow a week ago, the World Meteorological Association warned that humanity is in uncharted territory when it comes to climate and weather, and that extreme events are becoming the new norm driven by our burning of fossil fuels. At the same time, the G20 agreed to stop financing coal plants outside their borders, but did not agree to stop financing coal within their borders. The world's richest countries also could not agree on transferring money to poorer countries to help them afford not to burn coal. On the second day of the conference, over 100 countries, accounting for over 70% of the world's economy, agreed to cut methane emissions 30% by 2030. Methane is a potent greenhouse gas that heavily warms the atmosphere for a relatively short amount of time so dealing with methane now is crucial for the small window that we have to keep our climate stable. The Energy Mix notes that a report released last May by the Climate and Clean Air Coalition and the UN Environmental Program concluded that a 45% methane reduction this decade could, could shave almost 0.3 degrees uh, Celsius off uh, future global warming by the 2040s. That's of course not what's been agreed upon here, but this agreement could still shave off maybe a tenth of a degree of warming. I don't know. Provided our emissions, our other emissions, don't push us into new and unpredictable climate cycles. India has made an unexpected announcement at COP26 to consume 50% renewable energy nationwide by 2030 and to go net zero by 2070. Justin Trudeau felt the need to invoke the decimation by fire of Lytton, B.C. earlier this year in his two-minute speech. He then announced that Canada would cap our oil and gas sector emissions and ensure that they decrease in line with our 2050 net-zero target. Dale Marshall of Environmental Defense said of the announcement, "...focusing on emissions from oil and gas production but not production itself," will allow uh, oil and gas companies to keep putting forward false solutions such as carbon capture and storage, fossil-based hydrogen, and far-off net-zero plans, all while pumping out more and more atmosphere-destroying fossil fuels. Indeed, the Canadian Energy Outlook prepared by the Trottier Energy Institute argues that reducing oil and gas production is the only way for Canada to meet our emissions target for 2030, which is a 40% reduction from 2005 levels. The argument is that unless we plan to rapidly and intensely plan and invest in a deep, trans-sectoral metamorphosis over the next eight years, we have to stop producing oil and gas in order to meet the 2030 target. Still, Canadian oil and gas companies are against Trudeau's modest announcement, even as they claim to be leading the industry to somehow reaching net-zero emissions while still extracting fossil fuels. A recent report from 17 climate groups found that eight of Canada's largest fossil fuel producers are utterly failing to do anything meaningful and will in fact be increasing their emissions 25% by 2030. The CEO of Cenevis Energy recently said that the Canadian public must pay over $50 billion to the industry in order to make tar sands oil the cleanest in the world. Unfortunately, it looks like Canadian tar sands oil is, still, is not going to get much more popular, as the just-completed Line 3 pipeline has actually lowered the price that American refineries are willing to pay for that oil. With four climate activists now having been on hunger strike for two weeks to convince the American government to do something about the climate crisis, Joe Biden told COP26 that the U.S. would lead by example even though he has just had to significantly water down his climate plan to appease politicians who have been bought and sold by the fossil fuel industry. Even his watered-down deal, which pledges $555 billion to climate initiatives, most of which is in tax credits, technology investments, and adaptation methods, is not guaranteed to pass. The Biden administration has also rolled back its minimum corporate tax rate proposal, roughly cutting it in half. The proposal was an attempt to get big corporations to finally pay income taxes and would have targeted any company with over $100 million in profits, but it will now only target companies with over $1 billion in profits, uh, generating about 50% less in revenue that could have gone toward green or social initiatives. The U.S. is also now holding human rights lawyer Steven Donziger in federal prison for six months because the oil company Chevron has a vendetta against him and was allowed to use its own lawyers to prosecute him. Donziger recently stated of the case, quote, It's not every day that Amnesty International issues an urgent action for an American citizen. It's probably the second time in 20 years that this has happened. It's not every day that the United Nations Working Group on Arbitrary Detention issues an order that someone in the United States' case is a violation of multiple provisions of international law and shows an appalling degree of lack of impartiality by judges. Donziger is in prison because he helped win a case against Chevron after they killed people with toxic waste in the Amazon. But it's not just the Amazon that Chevron is poisoning. They were also allowed to pour toxic fracking waste into holes in the ground in California for 50 years. And California, on top of just having gone through its driest year in almost a century, is now facing major groundwater contamination. The contamination is not from Chevron alone, of course, as the state has long allowed oil and gas companies to dump liquid waste into pits in the ground. Oil executives were recently called to the U.S. Congress to defend their long records of lying about climate science, but they successfully lied their way through the hearing, admitting to no wrongdoing and committing to no new measures to combat climate change. This comes as a new report shows That the oil company Total has also known about climate change since the 70s and has been lying about it ever since. In addition, a recent paper in Environmental Politics by Benjamin Franta shows how economists have been hired by oil, oil companies since the 1990s to spin the idea that climate action is inherently bad for the economy. Many of these economic analyses were presented in the media as being unbiased, scientific, and from trusted sources, even though they were never peer-reviewed and were paid for entirely by the fossil fuel industry. Finally, here in Canada, hereditary Chief Sahail of the Wet'suwet'en Liksameshu clan was arrested by our colonial officers last week as he was shutting down the vehicles that are being used to destroy Wet'suwet'en land. One supporter was also arrested, and Skyler Williams of 1492 Landback Back Lane led a shutdown of a highway in Ontario in solidarity. A recent study from Yale shows that indigenous people have had 99% of their land stolen from them by colonizing forces in North America, and have been pushed into margins more at risk from climate disasters.
1: As Dave mentioned, the interview that we're coming up after after this conversation is for this Global Day of Climate Justice, which is designed and meant to sort of push for real changes and real action at COP twenty six. And just a brief update on what's going on at COP twenty six for those who may not be following. Half my Twitter feed apparently is there, so it's an interesting way of getting a sense of what's going on. And basically, what's happening is. It's being described as similar, actually, to the 2015, which is uh, Conference of Parties, which was in Copenhagen, which was a distinct failure, uh, in part because of how inaccessible it has become to civil society groups and observers. The quote unquote most accessible uh, or most inclusive COP ever, which was how it was built, has become an absolute nightmare of long lines of whole civil society being given sort of four tickets into rooms. And it just seems like people who are encouraged to fly across the world, which all huge climate and at own, at their own personal cost are now being told to watch this thing from their hotel rooms on, on zoom or on the, the cop 26 platform they created. But still like this is, a, they're being shut out. And so if you were wondering the importance uh, of this, of this day, uh, I think you should not, what
0: about the importance of this day?
1: The event tomorrow is designed to pressure and show world action towards taking climate justice seriously at COP.
0: The Global Day for Climate The Global justice. Day for Climate Justice, exactly.
1: And if, you know, again, if that wasn't uh, enough of a reason to go to this event, the first demand they have is respect indigenous sovereignty, uh, which that last story about what is going on with Sudan only further highlights, you know, the ways in which this is being ignored. But... Uh, lots of other news there, especially the Trudeau pieces. so uh, to you, uh, Alex.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, I guess I'll start with the um, oil and gas emission target. So um, I think it's worth digging into why the timelines on emissions reduction or uh, reducing oil and gas extraction are so long and why the government is sort of honestly a little bit trapped in their options of what they can do to put pressure on the oil sector. so, There are three main sort of sub sectors of the oil and gas sector that I think need to be freed from fossil fuel usage before the government is really able to put enough pressure on them to clean up their actions or just stop extraction altogether. And those are um, fertilizer for food production, home heating and goods transport. So those three things sort of enable the fossil fuel sector to sort of hold all of us hostage um, because we really can't do anything without um, uh, fertilizer that's potent- that's majority made from natural gas. And there are a couple installations now that are trying to use green hydrogen to make um, ammonia-based fertilizers, but that is, that's a really, really very vital part of um, just human welfare across the world. And then things like hu- house heating and goods transport sort of are exactly the same as that. So I would like to see them Talk a little bit more about those subsectors rather than just focusing on sort of the whole, just sort of saying it sort of performatively that they're going to trap their cut the emissions for the whole, whole sector. Um, and as well, it's worth mentioning like the amount of money that that is going to cost. So the, the US plan right now is 560 billion almost, and um, that's promised to only reduce 1 billion tons of carbon dioxide, and we currently emit about 40 billion. Per year. so And we need to go back and reduce the legacy emissions. So that's not clearly enough.
1: So one of the things I've been hearing a lot about is heat pumps. Are heat pumps the answer to that heating issue or are heat pumps entirely different?
2: Heat pumps are definitely an option. Home retrofitting and things like that are, have shown to have the biggest impact on emissions reduction in Canada over the last 10 years or so. But there, the government needs to put rebate programs in place for people to make those retrofits and, and actually you know trade in their cars for electric vehicles. They're going to have to dish out a lot of money to get people to do that.
1: Right, yeah. And I will say that a friend of the show, uh, Matthew Klippenstein, has a very interesting point on, on this, which is one of his concerns, which I think is very valid, is that the more we give money to homeowners and people who are going to afford new cars to incentivize these rebates, the more we are incentivizing sort of the richest or the top five percent of of the population who can afford these things and and so along with these things we had to find ways to like get people to use public transit or you know and find and include these other types of building retrofits and things like that. like there's got to be like a pretty holistic response here uh, to to shift in each of these three sort of buckets that you that you mentioned.
2: and build building public transit in more than three cities in Canada.
1: Yeah, or just like a national bus service. I am so on a national bus service that until I get one, I will keep keep, uh, complaining about it. As Dave mentioned, just to highlight a couple of those things about again about those about those targets that Trudeau set. A, he did mention these before. Like it's confusing me to me sometimes when the media just sort of forgets that things happened previously. You know, like, he literally said almost these exact same words during the campaign, and so then when he said them again after the campaign, they were like, announces this thing! And I was like, no, he didn't. He's just repeating a thing he said three months ago, and for some reason you're acting as if it's new just because he's telling other people about it which seems like giving him extra credit that is not really deserved. It's sort of like, is this weird puff that they can oh, have there? He's
0: announcing on the world stage, Stefan. Think about the audience, the luster.
1: Yeah, we, how often have people said things in the world stage that not followed through the at
0: all? The glamour of being a world leader.
2: Um, could I say something about the oil sector knowing, like the oil sector knowing about um, climate change since the 70s? So in in the 1970s, the oil majors, Exxon and Mobil, before they merged, had very robust uh, greenhouse gas chemistry programs that they were well, very well funded. And those programs were to figure out ways to recycle the greenhouse gases from their processes and use them in the world today. It's the same way we hear about all these tech startups trying to recycle carbon dioxide and make stuff out of it. And those programs went all the way up until the mid 80s and they were just nixed because um, they were not going to be as profitable as just figuring out what else they could make from fossil fuels. So there is actually this whole body of technology that those oil companies are sitting on and um, that they could potentially pull up like dust off and uh, use, but it's it's not going to be cheaper than what they're currently doing. And so that's why they don't want to use it, which is quite frustrating. (laughs)
1: and and no one else can use it just because it's under patent or just because they don't have access to all the oil?
2: The patents, I think, the IP and technology is just sort of lost in their um, R&D archives.
1: You think you learn everything that would make you mad about an industry, and then someone tells you something new, and you're like, oh, you actually have a bunch of technology. Like, do, Do you have any examples of what this technology would do?
2: Yeah, so you can use carbon dioxide to make some of the same chemicals that they currently make out of oil, and that would drastically reduce um, the amount of oil they would have to pull out of the ground. And as well, they have certain scrubbing technologies for emissions columns and things like that that aren't really really being used. But the, the effort to reduce carbon dioxide emissions from the oil sector very much maps the effort to get them to stop releasing sulfur dioxide that happened in the 80s and early 90s. And there are still people today trying to figure out how to make those captured sulfur emissions profitable, and they're just never going to be profitable. You just have to sort of decide to pull them out of the air. And just same goes with carbon dioxide chemistry. It's not physically possible to make it cheaper than using oil. So it's just it, it has to come from regulations and not, uh, you know, trying to turn it into a tiny little business that's not actually your business.
1: <laughs> What's crazy about that is that implies that even semi-useful regulation 30 years ago could have done absolute wonders to where we'd be right now. Like, just a few yeah. price pushings 30 years ago, and we're in a vastly different world.
2: Yeah, the sulfur dioxide regulation was quite successful. It solved a lot of acid rain problems in the late 80s, early 90s. The
1: the, the other thing about that particular, um, what do you call it when they talk to the Congress? Hearing? Hearing, yeah. The, the other thing about that particular hearing that was a little bit weird was just sort of the difference between the oil executives sort of were very much, you know, businessy people, and they would sort of talk as if they were all aligned on trying to reduce emissions, and weren't, you know, and weren't really pressed enough in my mind. In some of these things, although, although they are getting subpoenaed for this information, which is great news generally, but it was as if the literal oil executives were not into oil enough for the Republican congresspeople who just wanted to, you know, imply that these, even the oil executives themselves somehow were not, and we're not, we're not pro-oil enough. They didn't accuse them of that, but that's just how they sort of were talking about the whole industry.
2: There's a, there's a reason why the chief sustainability officer of Suncor is an ex-politician. And <laughs> uh, also, um, I don't, this is anecdotal, so you can cut it from your show if you want, but um, a couple of years ago, I was at the Toronto Stock Exchange, which is admittedly not where you expect good environmental things to happen, but um, a sea level executive from an oil major in Canada was talking and to this group of business people and they said in their speech that they never see protests against oil and they only ever see protests against wind turbines because people, you know, are out there protesting in like a anti-vax kind of way that they like give people headaches and kill birds and stuff like that. And so that's really like the like the people who don't get to go into the cop meetings and see these people. That's the that's the type of talk that's going on.
1: <laughs> and then and then and then of course in their defense, what you end up getting are these accusations of it really being the job of, you know, China and India to reduce their emissions. And and yet what we now have seen from both China and India, they both have now submitted, you know, these these sort of these targets that are faster than people I think originally expected. And yeah, and 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 so and then the people who are sort of saying it's up to them also are not supporting the type of technology transfer or support for these for this decarbonization like that's probably that some of the cheapest decarbonization that exists in the world is supporting these countries who need to do this and yet we're not able to see that in this scenario
2: yeah but it they also have set up these new technology venture arms where they are investing in sort of new technologies um, that they hope to eventually integrate into their their processes, but that remains to be seen.
1: The pie graph on how much uh, of, an, of these oil companies' job is still in oil versus how much is through these deserf- deserf- des- diversifications are incredible. You know, you can't even see the other lines.
2: Yeah, Suncor always says it's Canada's largest renewable energy provider because they technically own the largest solar plants, but it's like minuscule.
1: Well, uh, thanks, Alex, for joining us. Uh, please come back again. And we will now dive into an interview uh, with Nigel Bariff.
0: Nigel brief
1: <clears throat> Nigel Barif, co mc of the Global Day for Climate Justice, happening tomorrow at 1 p.m. Queen's Park all over the world, but also here in Toronto, enjoy the music. are here with a, a interview I'm very excited about with Nigel Barif, the co MC of the Global Day for Climate Justice, which, if you are listening to this live or on the day it's released, which is Friday, November 5th, is tomorrow and in Toronto, so you can still go. Thank you so much uh, for joining us, Nigel. I'm so humbled to be here as I'm just going to tell you
3: again, live for everyone. I am a huge fan of you and a huge fan of the program and just very grateful for you helping us to get the word out on such an incredible event that's happening on Saturday.
1: Yes, that's exactly on Saturday. We're going to, if you leave knowing anything, leave knowing you can still go to this event. It's tomorrow. So. Let's start with a, a really open-ended question. Can you just provide a quick introduction to yourself uh, and how you got involved in the climate movement? Yeah, be, look, I'm a school teacher. I teach
3: in a public school system, Toronto District School Board. I got into school teaching because, you know, there was a really high dropout rate, especially amongst um, young black males. And I have a younger sister who's a school principal. She's like, hey, do we need more black males, especially in elementary? So... Next day, I left Bay Street, went back to teachers college. I was so lucky, fortunate, blessed to be able to actually get a job right out of teachers college in the elementary school that I taught at. And um, and so when I got there, Green Home, Junior Middle School, shout out Green Home. Um, when I got there, it was, you know, I thought naively, okay, I got this. I'm gonna. Just, I'm going to get to know all the children I'm going to put together an excellent plan and I'm going to get them all through university. And so at the first peer teacher night, no, oh, sorry. Quick, 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 uh, background. Greenhome is in Northwest Toronto, Etobicoke North, Rexdale. It's in the newspaper, it's always written about because of all the bad things that are hap- that happened there. I know it as a beautiful neighborhood that you know many of us were able to graduate and move on and do wonderful things. But but yeah, it it is part of one of the high priority neighborhoods that has been identified by the city and, and much research, high j- dropout rates, poverty, you know, housing challenges, you know, transit issues. So you name it, it, it's on any of the socioeconomic indicators, it's challenged by uh, on the bottom of the list. And so when I got there, I thought, okay, this is going to be no problem. I'm going to meet with some of the the parents and we're going to work together and we're going to make sure that their kid goes off to university. Anyway, that parent teacher, I had like three parents of my, of the 30 children had my class show up and I was so upset. Obviously, I did have a really a, a decent critical analysis of what was happening in working class neighborhood at the time, because when I went to talk to the parents, many of them were either working two jobs or going to, you know, going to school so they couldn't make it. And so uh, for me, I you know, it was that moment, uh, hot that aha moment in my own trajectory was like, oh, you need, if we can get people a decent job then they only have to work one job, then they can be at home and they can be with their kid and read with them and help them do well at school. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make sure that we get good jobs for the neighborhood. And that led me to the good jobs for all coalition. Who's one of the supporting partners for this. And it was through that work of the good jobs coalition that really deep dived me into the environmental movement.
1: Man, honestly, it's so refreshing to hear someone come into the environment from a pursuit for good jobs like that's such a it's it's an increasing sector of people but i think it's still not a common sector you know people come in from other angles but like the idea of like i no, i want this environmental movement and this movement to include and be a part of good jobs for people is such a, a refreshing way to enter
3: yeah 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 i mean that's so the billionaires have been making off with like lots of money through this pandemic but it's some we the working class people the poor, you know the unemployed unwaged folks that have been having to, to take in the brother on our chins and so yeah the, we have to make sure that whatever this new reality is right that they're they're good jobs that are good for the environment that's for me what what brings me to this work
1: yeah so I do want to get to what's happening on the 6th, but I first, I think you just sort of hit it a little bit there, but I want to tease that a little bit more, which is this question of how do you see the world right now? What are these fundamental issues that need to be tackled? Well, I need, you know,
3: as a school teacher, we see it firsthand, the gap between the wealthy, the 1% and the rest of us, right? When you have children that are coming to school and they don't have, they haven't eaten properly, or, you know, many teachers and education workers will tell you they'll actually go out and buy things like gloves or decent coat for children. These things affect a child's growth and development, right? So it is the the widening gap between the rich and the rest of us that in my opinion is at core of this And, and the pandemic. It's just really just taken the, the facade off of what was supposed to be the social safety net that was supposed to keeping us all up. When instead, what we've seen is, especially in you know black, brown um, communities, that it, the pandemic ravaged us because we didn't have paid sick days. So we had to choose to be either going to work or not eating, right? Because you didn't go to work and, and, and you didn't get paid. And, and that you had a government that just refused Provide sick days for, for people. So for me, in my opinion, it is that growing gap that's just been exasperated by people by these large corporations that are hiding their money down in, in Cayman Islands and all those places. And instead of funding a, a strong public school system, instead of funding public health system that 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 works for working class people, that's for me what I think we all need to focus on. That at what we're trying, this new world that we're thinking truth. We can't just recreate capitalism or the current market in the way that it is right now, because it's not working for people. It's not. And so that's, I'm hoping that's the conversation that comes out of cops. So I, well, I don't think that that's going to happen, but yeah. Yeah
1: yeah, I mean, we all can we all can hope, right? There's always hope is hope is necessary a little bit for to fight back some of the cynicism that I'm sure we all all feel. You know, I think they let Jeff Bezos speak yesterday, so I'm not entirely certain we're going to get exactly what we want out of this thing, but speaking of cop, of course, this event is meant, you know, it's a global event. This is the Toronto location. and it's meant in part to bring global attention to at the moment that cop is happening, being like, hey, everyone, you know, yes, people are in Glasgow talking about climate change, but this is a global issue and justice has to be at the center of it. And so perhaps you can tell us what is the event that's happening on the 6th uh, and also what are the demands being put forward uh, by the action? Yeah, so it's Saturday, November 6th um, at 1 p.m.
3: out in the south grounds of, of Queens Park. You will see I'm, I am I. have the absolute honor of co-mc with Crystal Sinclair, who is a Cree woman from the uh, f- uh, Fisher River Cree First Nation in Manitoba. She's also chair of Food Share and a founding member of Idle No More. So just just a fierce warrior for her people and and certainly for Mother Earth. And uh, and we have a number of speakers that will be there: Skyler Williams, Six Nations land defender and, and spokesperson for the 1492 Land Back. Andrea Babington is the first black woman um, to be president of the Toronto and New York Labour Council. Alice Zhu is an environmental uh, science PhD student and a member of the people's Client climate movement. And So We Care Matzer, she's a young person who's suing the Ontario government because of the way that for failing for weakening the 2030 climate target. We have a number of musicians that will be there. All right, Artists for Real Climate Action Arca is a a new group of of local entertainers and actors that will be there that are putting together a number of of visuals and and we're hoping, you know, puppetries. So it it is going to be a a family-focused event that is to bring together all of our different movements, bringing together our indigenous community, bringing together labor, bringing together community, because it's only through that solidarity that we're gonna be really able to to push back these forces, you know, that, that are still getting in the way of us having real action on climate action.
1: <laughs> yeah, and so w- what are your demands? So we got four demands, respect
3: indigenous sovereignty, we gotta, Phase out fossil fuels. We've got to have a just transition for community and workers, and we've got to have global justice. Um, so those are the, the kind of the four areas that you know the that all of the different community groups that are coming together that we believe that we need to make sure that we put our own government and all the, the the wealthy countries to fight
1: for those four
3: four demands.
1: Awesome and. With COP26 going on, obviously, there's a lot of focus going on right now about international issues. And the discussion right now coming out of COP, to go back to our sort of cynicism about the whole operation, is, is how hard it is for a lot of the people in COP right now to even get into the plenaries, how it feels like they're just keeping civil society and those calling for justice out of the discussion rooms. And there's a whole push right now, actually, to try to get Even the people who are there in Glasgow's voices heard, let alone those of us who are back home. But I wonder if we can dive into this call about demand for global justice. What does a world that takes this call seriously look like?
3: Well, I mean, that demand, like we are demanding an increase in Canada's pledge to the Green Climate Fund for climate mitigation, adaptation, green development in the global south. We, here in Canada and in Western countries, we have been the ones that have contributed the most to dumping carbon into the um, Earth's atmosphere. So we should be the one that are, are footing the majority of the bill. It wasn't, it, my my parents, my family were from Jamaica originally. And I'm like, you know, Jamaica wasn't the one that like made this happy, you know, like most of the global South country didn't did put us, put the planet in this situation. So we as Canada need to, to maintain that pledge. It's an end to the environmental and social harm that's caused by Canadian mining companies abroad. We've got some wonderful researchers. My partner, Anna Zalik, is a researcher at, at York University, That and, and, and many of them that have done the, the research. We know that Canadian companies are just been abhorrent in their behaviour and corporate responsibility down in the global south, and we need that to stop. We need to have respect for Indigenous sovereignty globally, not only here... Quick aside, Prime Minister, can you, if you're watching, could you please stop taking our our Indigenous children to court? Like, stop it! We know that's not true. But also, some globally. Also, uh, we need an en- emergency pact, as called for by the Climate Vulnerable Forum, including an annual ambition raising platforms for high emitting nations and an emergency coalition for debt restructuring. And we've seen this in the past how um, large corp country co- countries lend smaller countries money and then put them in debt for hun- for a hundred years and and it's just that's not the way that we're going to be able to get through this and I don't blame these smaller countries for not trusting the larger wealthier countries and that the c- climate migrants are need to be fully welcome and accommodated and I'm I'm so proud of the work that the migrants. Miguel's right. Network has been doing to shine a light on this. We know the the more that these adverse climate act, climate catastrophes keep happening, the more that it's going to force folks to have to like move and 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 find somewhere else to live. And so we can't keep our borders and and doing this to keep people out. It's just it's horrible. It's deplorable. It's disgusting. And and so I think. We as Canadians, we, we certainly have the ability to take leadership in it. So that's when you talk about with the global justice, we've benefited the most um, from high carbon economies, accumulating wealth and increasing emissions disproportionately. And, and as I said before, earlier, you know, those in the, in the global South have bared the least responsibility for, for these emissions, but yet have experienced the worst aspects of the unfolding crisis and, and face debts impo- imposed by banks and governments of the North. Uh, as one of the wealthiest com- countries highest emitting countries canada must lead the way taking our fair share of emissions and reducing financial response and reductions and financial responsibility that's what we have to do as canadians if anything less is an admiration of our we're not taking the leadership we're just hot air <laughs> we're just emitting more hot air into the planet this is there's is no more time we this is ipcc I know, Stephanie, I know you've been talking about this and, and saying this to your listeners. The IPPC report has has made it clear, like we've got to do something now.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. One of the things, just briefly touch on your piece about needing to accept and really create a community of accepting of, of climate migrants. One of the thing ways I think the media has actually most failed, and there I will have I have many criticisms of the, of the ways media has failed the climate conversations. But I think one of the biggest failures has been separating. A lot of migration stories that exist in this world from climate change. You see, you hear so, so, so much about so the southern border of the states and nothing of the droughts and of the climate catastrophes that are pushing people out of the places they want to live. People don't want to do this. There's a failure to connect those two things. Like you are so right when you say that it is our moral responsibility to ensure that these people have a place to go. Because again, we cause this is we as Canadians, we did this to our to the world, and we must responsibly respond to it. Yeah, I don't, bang, bang
3: on. Yeah, totally agree. I, I, and this is what it—it it, it is a worry when we saw this most recent federal election, and and we barely talked about immigration. We did—we barely talked about what, like a, a real climate change plan, right? Like it, it just—it wasn't what it wasn't top of mind, or like we as as the voters didn't force the we didn't say to people to, to these politicians i'm not giving you my vote unless we have real climate action and i don't know how you see all of the the forest fires that were going on in bc the the floods that were happening across across the country the melting ice up in our territories i don't know how you see those things and not realize that We're going to have to hold these politicians accountable. We can't just let them go on standing in front of these cameras and, and, and microphones and spew hot air that's full of BS. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Next question goes from the very, very macro to the somewhat personal. And I ask it because it's something that I have begun thinking about a lot over the past year because, and it's about climate anxiety. Which, for those who miss this or don't know the term, it's just the idea that people are becoming increasingly anxious about the future of our planet, and that is causing sort of mental health challenges. Like, really, just directly to their own individual self, let alone the generic concern for the the Earth, which is obviously important, but really just mental health-wise. So, you know, do you feel climate anxiety, and if so, how do you manage it? Because I'm just, at this point, just crowdsourcing solutions for myself, to be honest. This is a very selfish question.
3: Yeah, I, I, I thank you, you know, Stefan, for your vulnerability and, and sharing that. I concur. I, I feel it myself. I mean, for me, how I've dealt with anxiety is just to immerse myself in the work. So then that way, it doesn't allow you to take up the headspace. But I, I shared with you, I've got, a, I've got a six-year-old son, Joshua, and I keep thinking, like, he's going to one day look me in the eye and say, Dad, what did you do? Like how come you didn't how come you didn't talk sense to these people when you had the chance in twenty twenty one or even before that? And so I for me, I want him to know and be able to see that okay, his dad did everything that in his power that he could. But on a real like level, for me, it's actually music. <laughs> music and art. I mean, we have um Cassie Norton, we have Mohamed Ali, the the hip-hop, socialist hip-hop artist that's going to be performing. We are, hope, we're still waiting to confirm, but we we do hope to have some um, Indigenous um, dancers that will also be present. And and as I shared with you, Artists for Real Climate Change, ARCA is a group of performers, of artists, of of actors that have been bringing their, they've been applying, using their talent in a way to speak to people. And I find that the art is, is one of the ways that we on the quote, left as progressives, as folks that are fighting climate change, I really think that we have to go. Speeches are important. I'm not like, I don't want to put those down, but I believe that we, you speak to people's hearts through music and through art. And, and I'm, that's one of the things I'm really looking forward to on Saturday at 1 p.m. at Queen's Park on the South Side, November 6, that folks will be able to come and also see the, the art. And that's a way, I think, of, of helping to, to deal with that anxiety, the climate anxiety that I, yeah, I agree, you know, we feel. and it is it's that and cynicism that those are the two that and cynicism that are the two things that worry me a lot, you know, about how are we going to fight that because if we too many of us just give up, we're, we, well, that's not a choice. I know for you and I, that's not a choice. So we we just gotta be, help people understand that giving up isn't an option. Yeah, for sure.
1: And so for those uh, who don't wanna give up and want to attend this on Saturday or get involved more generally in the push, how can they support, how can they get involved, and how can they join? Hey, look, we're, we are
3: still looking for, for, for volunteers. Um, we want, it is, we have a uh, COVID protocols that we wa- are going to follow so we'll need some volunteers to help hand out masks and and some antiseptic lotions for, for for folks if anybody is interested in helping with marshalling that will also be awesome make it we actually have a, a, a gofundme account set up that's that you could do- make a donation to to help with some of the organizing that would be awesome and greatly appreciated and certainly to spread the word if you go to november or not nov6toronto.org so nov6toronto.org you can see on there all of the information that we've been talking about and it's certainly the facebook and it's the grab twitter that's that's set up that that could help us to get the word out it's going to be a fun day most importantly it it, it, it is the plan is making it a fun day helping us all to connect with each other we know that this is a that climate change is top of mind. Hey, look, the last election, think about it. Even the Conservatives finally had to come out with an action plan. Like, the, even the Conservatives had to come out with what. So every, as we as Canadians, we as Torontonians, this is a really important issue for us. So it would be great if you could make it up Saturday, November 6th at 1pm at South,
1: South Lawn of Queen's Park. Amazing. And so thank you so much, Nigel Barif, the co-MC of the Global, Climate, so Global Day for Climate Justice, which again, November 6th, Saturday, 1 p.m. And as you mentioned, if you are a listener to the show, we do have a new tradition to give our guest the last word of the show. Uh, and so for this moment, uh, I ask you to imagine yourself just speaking to the airwaves. We're syndicated on about eight different shows our channel, so across the next week, this will be across Canada in different ways. And so if you just had one message you could give to the general Canadian populace, what would it be? And the floor is yours. We we are fighting for a better day. We're fighting for a
3: better day today. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, all it matters is fairness and nothing more. It's a verse chorus of a song I wrote that I wrote with my band over the over the pandemic, and uh, we're hoping to debut it on uh, at, at there. But you know, Mother Earth is hurting, but we can we we can we can help her. So I I know that we can do it. I know that Torontonians believe that we can do it. I know Canadians that we can do. Uh, do it and we've faced these kind of challenges, right? I hate war analogies, analogies, but there's been a few books written that have been employing that, right? So that we know that back in the World War II, even here in Toronto, they like they just Toronto just switched on a dime and became like this war machine, like making all sorts of planes and all that kind of stuff. Right. So even settlers here on Toronto Island have done that before. We know that we can fight climate change. We've just got to have the political will to do it. And we've got all the solutions already. There's a lot of smart people that have already thought through what we need to do. We just got to make sure that their voices are heard. So, and thank you, Brother Stetson. I really appreciate being here today. Just thank you for everything you're doing. Keep going, man. We need you. We need your voice. And, And thanks for having me.